Good morning, and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. This morning, I want to speak to you about the central relationship between God and the Jewish people, which is known in the Torah as Brit, the covenant. The, it is clear from both the Bible and scholarly research of the ancient Near East that the notion of covenant was not unique to the Torah nor to ancient Israel. If we look, for example, at Genesis 14, 21, 26, 31, or Joshua 9, or Joshua 15, or Samuel 3, in each of these contexts, the notion of covenant is being employed as a political notion, whereby individuals, clans, kings, tribes, and entire people drew up treaties to express friendship and ensure loyalty, as well as to establish alliances. Such treaties suggested at least some degree of mutuality, drawn up either for the benefit of both parties or alternatively as a reflection of their mutual vulnerability in the face of a common threat. More importantly, scholars of the ancient Near East point to sources which suggest that polytheistic religions had already extended the political usage of the term covenant and applied it to the relations between gods and humanity. The covenants mentioned um, in Genesis 6.18 and Genesis 9.18 through 15, which is the covenant with God and Noah, and the covenant expressed in Genesis 17, verses 2 through 21, between God and Abraham, seem to reflect such a usage and the biblical notion of a man-God covenant would not appear to be such a radical religious innovation when read with modern scholarship. Where the biblical notion of covenant does appear to extinguish itself is in the nexus of the God-man relationship. And so I want to begin with the notion of covenant. And to do that, I'm going to share with you some biblical material. And if you have a Bible at your side this morning, perhaps you can follow along with me. I'm going to begin in Genesis 15. There, we find an unusual experience. Genesis 15 Verse 7. Vayomer Elav, and God said to him, Ani Adonai Asher Hotse Ticha, Meor Kazdim, Latet Lacha Eta Arzazo Lurishta. I am the 
Adonai, who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to assign this land to you as a possession. And I and Avram said to him, O Lord God, how shall I know that I am to possess it? Vayomer Elav, and God answered him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old she-goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young bird. And he brought him all these, and he cut them in two, placing each half opposite the other. But he did not cut up the bird. Birds of prey came upon the carcasses, and Avram drove them away. As the sun was about to set, a deep sleep fell upon Avram, and a great dark dread descended upon him. And God said to him, Know well that your offspring shall be strangers in the land, not theirs, and they shall be enslaved and oppressed for four hundred years. But I will execute judgment on the nation they shall serve, and in the end they shall go forth free and great wealth. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a ripe age, and they shall return here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete." Now I want to read to you from Deuteronomy 26, 1 through 10. So hopefully you can uh, turn with me to Deuteronomy 26. And there we find another usage of covenant. When you enter the land that the Lord your God has given you as a heritage, you can possess it and settle in it. You shall take some of every first fruit of the soil, which you harvest from the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Put it in a basket and go to the place where the Lord your God will choose to establish his name. You shall go to the priest in charge of that time and say to him, I acknowledge this day before the Lord your God that I have entered the land that the Lord swore to our fathers to assign to us. And the priest shall take the basket from your hand and set it in front of the altar of the Lord your God. You shall then recite as follows before the Lord your God. My father was a fugitive Aramean. He went down to Egypt with meager numbers and sojourned there. But there he became a great and very populous nation. The Egyptians dealt harshly with him and oppressed them. And they imposed heavy labor upon them. We cried to the Lord, the God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our plea and saw our plight, our misery and our oppression. The Lord freed us from Egypt by a mighty hand, by an outstretched arm and awesome power, by signs and portents. He brought us to the place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Wherefore, I bring the first fruits of the soil, which I give you, the Lord hath given me. You can begin to hear the differences between the standard notion of covenant and that which is expressed in Genesis 15 and that which is expressed in Deuteronomy 26. And now one more. I want to read to you from Joshua. Joshua is the book in the Hebrew canon that follows right after the Torah. And I'm going to be reading to you from Joshua 24. Joshua assembled all the tribes of Israel at Shechem. He summoned Israel's elders and commanders, magistrates, officers, and they presented themselves before God. 
Then Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, In olden times your forefathers, Terach, father of Avram, and father of Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates and worshipped other gods. But I took your father Abraham from beyond the Euphrates and led him through the whole land of Canaan and multiplied his offspring. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. And I gave Esau the hill country of Seir as his possession, while Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. Notice in all three textual quotes, Egypt is mentioned. Then I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with wonders that I brought in their midst, after which I freed you. I freed your fathers from Egypt, and you came to the sea. And the Egyptians pursued your fathers to the Sea of Reeds with chariots and horsemen. They cried out to the Lord, and he put darkness between you and the Egyptians. Then he brought the sea upon them, and it covered them. Your own eyes saw what I did to the Egyptians. After you had lived a long time in the wilderness, I brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived beyond the Jordan. They gave battle to you, but I delivered them into your hands. I annihilated them for you, and you took possession of their land." Thereupon Bialik, Balak, son of Zippor, the son of Moab, made ready to attack Israel. He sent for Balaam, son of Beor, to curse you, but I refused to listen to Balaam. He had to bless you, and thus I saved you from him. And then you crossed the Jordan, and you came to Jericho. The citizens of Jericho and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hittites, the Gerasites and the Hevites and the Jebusites, fought you, and I delivered them into your hands. I sent a plague ahead of you, and I drove them out from before you. And just like the two Amorite kings, not by your sword nor by your bow, I have given you a land for which you did not labor and towns which you did not build, and you settled them, and you are enjoying the vineyards and olive groves which you did not plant. Now therefore revere the Lord and serve God with individual loyalty. Put away the gods that your forefathers served beyond the Euphrates and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Or if you are loath to serve the Lord, choose this day which ones you are going to serve, the gods that your forefathers served. But I and my household will serve the Lord." In reply, the people declared, Far be it from us to forsake the Lord and serve other gods. For it was the Lord our God who brought us and our forefathers up from the land of Egypt, the house of bondage, who wrought those wondrous signs before our eyes and guarded us all the way that we traveled among all the peoples through whose midst we passed. And then the Lord drove out before us all the peoples that inhabited the country we too will serve the Lord, for he is our God. That was from Joshua 24 through verse 18. And that section ends in the following way, Joshua 24, 25. On that day at Shechem, Joshua made a covenant for the people and he made a fixed rule for them. Joshua quartered all of this in a book of divine instruction. He took a great stone and set it upon at the foot of the oak in the sacred precinct of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, See, this very stone shall be a witness against us, 
for it heard all the words that the Lord spoke to us and shall be a witness against us, lest you break your faith with your God. Then Joshua dismissed the people to their allotted portions of the tribes. How radical these three descriptions of the covenant seem in relationship to the nice covenant between Noah and God and Abraham and God. In the passage from Genesis 15 describing the scene at Brit Ben Habitarim, the covenant between the pieces, so-called because it was consumed, consummated, when God, represented by smoke, passed between the pieces of animal flesh, there God establishes a covenant with Abraham. In this covenantal promise, God is clearly involved with the temporal fortunes of his tribe and nation. In Deuteronomy chapter 26 and the excerpts from chapter 24 of Joshua, the text offers us an intra-biblical glance backward in both cases. What is being remembered is God leading and even more importantly, God saving the nation. The development here is particularly striking when we think of the Torah in the ancient Near Eastern context from which it emerged, other pagan nations conceived of their encounter with the deity in terms of nature and the ebb and flow of the created world. In contrast, these texts from Deuteronomy and Joshua suggest that the ancient Israelites embraced the God that led them through history itself redeeming them from slavery, setting them on their own land. In a similar vein, the biblical presentation of the pilgrimage festival deliberately infuses the traditional agricultural rites of the annual spring and fall celebrations, which were widely observed in the ancient world and which parenthetically one could say about the winter festivals as well, with the covenantal themes of historical redemption and protection. But the Bible, the Torah, does not stop there. The preambles to both versions of the Decalogue, Exodus 19 and Deuteronomy 5, contain language and gestures of a covenantal relationship. In Exodus 19, for example... Moshe brings the word of the Lord to the elders, and including the conditional stipulation of verse 5. And now, if you will listen to my words and keep my covenant, you will be my treasured possession from all the people. Verse 7 goes on not only to recount the nation's ascent, but to tell us that Moshe brought the word of the people back to the Lord, as if to formalize the ratification of a deal. Most importantly, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, and the four chapters that follow serve to give the covenant substantive flesh in the form of extensive set of laws that include the totality of the ancient life, agriculture, social harmony, the adjudication of torts and family relations. 
Other books of the Pentateuch extend and deepen the substantive reach of biblical law, incorporating sexuality, cultic practices, and social welfare into the same mix of covenantal obligation. Deuteronomy chapter 5 in which we find the second exploration, exposition of the Aserita de Brot, the Ten Commandments, invokes the language of covenant once more and insists that the covenant was not only made with the Israelites' forefathers, but with us, all of us here who are living today. So you can see in these examples that covenant within the Torah is certainly a very different notion in those examples than what is traditionally expressed in the uh, more normative expressions of covenant with Abraham and with Noah. Let me read you another notion about covenant, this time from Deuteronomy 28. You know, Deuteronomy has its own unique history within the context of biblical scholarship and even within the tradition of Judaism. Uh, It is considered by scholars to be uh, a book that was written far later than many of the other books of the Torah. And even in Jewish tradition, it's um, spoken about as a book that was lost and not found until uh, hundreds of years later. I'm going to read to you from Deuteronomy 28, the end of the chapter into the beginning of Deuteronomy uh, 29. If you fail to observe faithfully all the terms of this teaching... The Imlo Tishmor La Asote called Divre Hatorah Hazot. Notice that the word Torah is used here to reverence this honored and awesome name, the Lord your God. The Lord will inflict extraordinary plagues upon you and your offspring, strange and lasting plagues, malignant and chronic diseases. He will bring back upon you all the sicknesses of Egypt that you dreaded so, and they shall cling to you. Moreover, the Lord will bring upon you all the other diseases and plagues that are not mentioned in this Torah until you are wiped out. I'm going to skip for a moment. The Lord, this is verse 64. The Lord will scatter you among the peoples from one end of the earth to the other, and there you shall serve other gods, wood and stone, whom neither you nor your ancestors have experienced. Yet among those nations, you shall find no peace, nor shall you foot find a place to rest. The Lord will give you there an anguished heart and eyes that pine and a despondent spirit. The life you face shall be precarious. You shall live in terror night and day with no assurance of survival. In the morning you shall say, if only it were evening, and in the evening you shall say, if only it were morning. Because of what your heart shall dread and your eyes shall see, the Lord shall send you back to Egypt in galleys by a route which I told you should not see again. These are the terms of the covenant this section of Deuteronomy ends with. These are the terms of the covenant. Eladivrei habrit 
Asher Tziva Adonaya Moshe Likoret et B'nei Yisrael Be'eretz Moav Milvad Habrit Asher Karat Ata Bechorev. These are the terms of the covenant which the Lord commanded Moses to conclude with the Israelite in the land of Moab, in addition to the covenant which he made with them at Horeb. Deuteronomy, which as I've already uh, explained, both traditional and critical scholars regard as a text that is qualitatively and possibly historically separate from the four biblical texts books that precede it would seem to bind the historical and substantive nature of the biblical covenant in a particularly forceful way. In this passage, also in Deuteronomy 7, there is an even more explicit insistence on the historical conditionality of this covenant. The success and stability of Israelite society would depend upon the faithfulness to the terms of the covenant, while their failure would lead to exile and worse. Among these lines, the classic prophets of Hebrew tradition pointed specifically to social and ethical values as the determinant of Israel's future. These themes become the passionate refrain of the prophets such as Yirmiyahu, Jeremiah, let me read to you what Jeremiah says. Jeremiah chapter 7. I hope you're following along with me this morning as we take a tour through the Hebrew text. Jeremiah 7, verses 21 through 26. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Add your burnt offerings to your other sacrifices and eat the meat. For when I freed your fathers from Egypt, I did not speak with them or command them concerning burnt offerings or sacrifices, but this is what I commanded, to do my bidding, that I may be your God and you may be my people. Walk only in the way I enjoin upon you, that it may go well with you. Yet you did not listen or give ear. They followed their own counsel and the willfulness of their own evil hearts. They have gone backward, not forward, from the day your fathers left the land of Egypt until today. And though I kept sending my servants, the prophets, to them daily and persistently, they would not listen to me or give ear. They stiffened their necks and they acted worse than their forefathers." at the brink of political collapse, pointed to the covenantal relation and its conditions in order to impede, to understand the impending doom. Let me recite this to you again. These themes of social and ethical values as a determinant of Israel's future became the passionate refrain of the prophets such as Yirmiyahu, who at the brink of political collapse pointed to the covenantal relationship and its conditions in order to understand the impending dune. Now, it would be important if we wanted to complete our understanding of the notion of covenant within the Torah by looking at uh, two more historical aspects of its use. 
As we noted, the split of ancient Israel into the northern and southern kingdoms yielded a prolonged period of upheaval and a primal struggle for existence in which issues of political legitimacy and stability were of great concern. And yet amid all this, the Davidic dynasty survived for over 350 years. A good measure of this success may be attributed to the transposition of the notion of covenant unto the house of David. There appears to be a special divine investment in the political rule of David that extended to his reign as well as the whole dynastic rule line that emanated from him. There is no doubt that the rulers of Judea used such divine sanction in perpetuating their monarchic line, and that this notion of a special covenantal relationship went a long way in securing the stability and legitimacy of the southern kingdom known as Judah. A perusal of some of the books of classical prophecy finally points to a marriage metaphor as a new conceptualization of the covenant. This classical formulation appears in Hosea 2, one of the least read books of the prophets, Hosea, and one of the more challenging ones to find uh, as it appears at the end of the books and is a small book. But in Hosea chapter 2, verses uh, 21 and 22, we find the expression of this notion of covenant. So let me read to you from Hosea chapter 2, verses 21 and 22. In that day I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the creeping things of the ground. I will also banish bow, sword, and war from the land. Thus I will let them lie down in safety. And I will espouse you forever. I will espouse you with righteousness and justice, with goodness and mercy. And I will espouse you with faithfulness. Then you shall be devoted to the Lord. Notice how the covenant there appears um, as a... Uh, that's the classic formulation, but in Hosea 7, we see a very different kind of expression of the covenant, one that has remained with the Jewish people forever. Well, um, it looks as if my time is running out for this morning, so I will leave you to search for it. Um, this morning, what I've wanted to convey to you through a tour through the Torah and the prophets, and Joshua, of course, is the many different uses of the word covenant. I hope that this has been helpful in understanding how the notion of covenant has survived the uh, millennium of Jewish life. For Jew faith and Jewish facts, I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten, wishing you good morning and shalom. A reminder that you can re-listen to our broadcast um, as a podcast on the CHRI website or find it on podcasts on iTunes. Shalom. Shalom.
Oh, 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 oh,